That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. My name is Ryan O'Callaghan, and my dilemma is I live in too conservative of a town. Okay, so on the one hand, I'd say if you live in a neighborhood full of people who think that who you are and who you love is wrong, then you should probably get the hell out of there. You don't have to try to be a hero and change the minds of people who don't want you to be yourself. If it makes you unhappy or unfulfilled or even unsafe, then you should definitely just go somewhere else where people will love you for you. On the other hand, the work of changing minds is usually done face to face. So when people's loved ones or neighbors or friends are gay, trans, Muslim, refugee, immigrant, or any other persecuted group, it forces them to actually try to connect and find common ground, find mutual interests, and find their shared humanity. So if you're there and you show them that being gay isn't something to fear or hate or change, you could help move that whole town into 2019. But don't consider it up to you. If you need to leave, let yourself go. The commission has spoken. My guest this week is Ryan O'Callaghan, former NFL player, now a speaker, activist, and founder of the Ryan O'Callaghan Foundation. He played at Cal, was drafted as a right tackle for the Patriots, and then eventually picked up by the Chiefs where he played a couple seasons. But the stress of being in the closet, addictions, injuries, it all became too much, and his NFL career ended. We talk about his new book, My Life on the Line, what it's really like to be a gay man in the NFL, the sudden end of his longtime friendship with Aaron Rodgers, how close he came to killing himself, and more. Throughout the pod, I read some short excerpts from the book. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. It was really open and honest, and I think the book could change a lot of things, especially for young people who are coming up and trying to find their place. An excerpt from Ryan O'Callaghan's My Life on the Line. When I finished polishing the guns, I set each one carefully in the gun cabinet. The time is coming when I will finally use one of those guns on my property. My injuries are mounting. Chiefs coach Todd Haley already has a role in taking away my starting position, a mixture of superstition and his tiff with our general manager, Scott Pioli, who brought me over from the New England Patriots. I figure I have at least a few years left in the NFL, though. With the dirt I have on one of my coaches, maybe a little more. Once my NFL career is over, I'll get in the truck, drive to the property, open this gun cabinet, and shoot myself in the head. I'm not building a cabin. I'm building a crypt. Nobody wants a faggot around. And so ends the first chapter of Ryan's book, My Life on the Line. So a couple months ago, Sid Ziegler reached out to me of OutSports and said, you know, can you read this book that's coming out in September? Maybe write a blurb for it if you're into it. And I could not put it down. Uh, it was such a great read, such an um, inspiring and sort of uh, I think game-changing read uh, is the way to is the way to describe it. It's called My Life on the Line: How the NFL Damn Near Killed Me and Ended Up Saving My Life. And the author Ryan O'Callaghan is here today to talk. And um, Ryan, I just have to say, congrats on the book. Uh, when this is airing, will be the day that it comes out. So I'm excited for you after all the work that goes into it to finally get to share it with people. Um, and I'm so excited to chat. I want to start way back at the beginning. Uh, you grew up in Redding, California. And um, tell me a little bit about the town that you grew up in. Yeah, so Redding, California is about 200 miles north of San Francisco, and it couldn't be any more different than what people think when they think of California. Redding is uh, an extremely conservative town. It used to be a logging town, and 
you know, now it's best known for uh, a religious group that lives here. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a nice mountain town. It's a beautiful place, but um, it's got a long way to go when it when it comes to um, you know catching up with the rest of the country politically. Well, and the religious group is sort of like unique to that area, and they believe in that they can cure cancer and um, pray the gay away, right? Yeah, right. So tell me, was that around the entirety of you growing up, or is it more known for that now? Uh, it was around. It, it was just getting formed, and now it's 10,000 members strong. The, the mayor's even on uh, one of the leaders of the group, and um, they've since growing up here, they've started a quote unquote school, um, which has students that move from all over the country and all over the world to come to Reading to uh, learn how to pray away cancer, among other things. And Justin Bieber posted about them at some point, and that's really when they got, you know, the big push, right? Yeah, Bieber uh, decided to tweet about them. They, 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 this group gets a lot of their following through their music production and, and different media that they do. And uh, they either got lucky or however you want to look at it by having someone like Bieber tweet about them, and that got them a lot more attention. Um, you know, we, we all have our own beliefs about things, but, uh, you know, it, it's a little unfortunate to, you know, what, what they're, what I believe they're doing to the people that they bring here. Yeah. So you're growing up, um, you're a big kid, you're, you know, meant to be an athlete. It feels like you were meant to be, but, um, you know, your dad was a professional athlete. It was a very, um, I guess what you'd imagine of like a man's man kind of world for you growing up. Yeah, my, my dad played in the uh, played in the minor baseball system through the Giants, and um, you know I was a big kid growing up. My dad was always into sports. Even you know after he was done playing, he officiated, and I was always around. Uh, you know games he would he would be taking part in. So all the coaches knew me and saw me, and you know I was Tom's son. I was a big kid, and um, everyone always assumed that. I was going to play football or basketball because I was tall. And, um, you know, at a young age, I, I had all these coaches coming up, giving me the elbow saying, Hey, you know, you should come play for enterprise or any other high school in town. So it was always assumed that, you know, my, my next step in life was going to be playing football. Um, even though I had genuinely no desire whatsoever. Why didn't you want to play? It just didn't interest me. Um, the friends that I hung out with at a younger age weren't necessarily athletes. They were more drama band people. Um, and I never played peewee growing up. So I, I just, I never, I never really took a liking to it. You know, my parents were diehard 49er fans from San Francisco. So that was always on on the weekends. And I just, I never, quite frankly, I never understood how someone could get that, involved in a team um right. or a sport it just it just never just never clicked with me so and still what you, right <laughs> well <laughs> luck, luckily for your paycheck and your career earlier people do get really invested in it right? yeah no no no. I, I i love that people are passionate about things in life and and it's good to have a balance 
Um, and I know all the athletes out there appreciate everyone. You know, it, it is it is good to bring families together and, and you know, and go to different events. You know, it is, it is a great thing and a good culture in this country. And um, I am a big fan of, of what sports and the NFL in general does. But just for me personally, I'm just not, you know, it's not my life. Yeah, for sure. Um, at what age do you think you realized that you were gay? Well, growing up younger, you know, pre-puberty, I knew I was different. You know, all your buddies are getting little crushes on, on girls and, you know, having the the hidden little kiss in, in elementary school. And I just never felt that attraction. And so I knew I was different. And I thought I might have been a late bloomer. But by the time I hit puberty, you start to have not only no attraction to girls, but you're starting to get an attraction to guys. And at that point, you know, I knew I was gay, and in my mind, there was something wrong. And, and at that time, you sort of changed up your friends. You looked around and thought, this group of theater kids is not a great cover for me. I need to start to be the guy's guy. Um, and that really changed your personality, too. Yeah, I, I was, I looked at all the stereotypes of, you know, what people thought of as gay guys, and, and the worst place for a closet gay guys around theater and band people. So I, I started getting into sports more and um, I was lucky to, to kind of join the different clique in high school with the athletes. Cause you know, when you're, when you're a good athlete, you kind of naturally gravitate towards the other good athletes who are typically more masculine. So that was uh, you know beneficial for me in a lot of ways. Here's another excerpt from Ryan's book. I also became an asshole. It's one of my biggest regrets from my youth. In my insane quest to prove to the world I was straight, I started harassing the very drama and band kids I had called friends all those years. Except that wasn't me. I had always been one of the good kids. I'm sure a lot of my friends thought the sudden mean streak came from my football success, but the root of it all was really my desperate insecurity about being gay. For my purposes, it all worked. I never heard a peep about being gay or not dating girls. And you also sort of talked about how you almost wanted to try to be an asshole. Like you wanted to be a bad guy to people because that felt like the kind of personality and the kind of uh, swagger that people would associate with, with a jock. Yeah. And, and in my mind, I, I, I thought, you know, if, if someone's going to think of me, I'd rather them think of me of how big of an asshole I am rather than why isn't Ryan dating someone. So I, I, as messed up as it is, and I've apologized to a lot of people for it since then. I, I just I took the approach of being mean to people, so you know that would be my label instead of you know in my mind I thought people might think I was gay, and that terrified me. So I would do anything to not let that happen. It's sort of a theme throughout the book: the amount of time that you had to spend either rehearsing and choreographing what you would act like if you were put in a situation where a girl was hitting on you or people would ask about whether you had a girlfriend back home or um, the things that you'd like, drinking beer and driving a pickup and all that stuff. Um, you spend a lot of your time thinking about what you needed to present to other people so that they wouldn't ask questions, right? Yeah, basically every night I just sit there and, and go over different scenarios in my head. Uh, for, for whatever reason, I... I always thought someone was looking at me wondering about my sexuality. You know, it's crazy to look back and think that I was thinking that, but you know, when you're closeted, you, you're kind of consumed by it. And 
so once again, I, I, I looked at all the stereotypes and I, I tried to do the opposite. You know, I would drink beer, even though I really couldn't stand it. And I drove a pickup and I chewed tobacco and uh, gained a lot of weight to try to look like a sloppy straight guy. And um, for the most part, it worked. So you get to, uh, uh, you become a, a good enough football player, even though it wasn't a passion for you initially, uh, to get a scholarship to Berkeley. This is a big deal. It's, it's near Reading. So it's a place that everybody kind of recognizes, oh, you're, you know, you're big man on campus getting a football scholarship. Um, and you get there and, uh, you, you have to struggle through some injuries. You start smoking weed a bit to calm your thoughts and, and kind of, um, again, put on this kind of, mask of I'm the big guy who just kind of smokes a lot and then people don't wonder why I'm not going out as much or getting involved socially. Yeah, I, I, I had quite a few offers from different colleges and I, I chose Berkeley mainly because it was close to home. I thought friends that I had here would, would come down and, um, you know, I, 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 Berkeley had a lot to offer. I took advantage of most of those things, not enough, time in class that I should have, but, uh, <laughs> overall Berkeley was a, was a great choice. Um, you know, I, I once again, didn't have long-term plans. I was just playing football to stay closeted, but you know, Berkeley was as good of a place to do that as anywhere else. And it ended up being a great stepping stone for the NFL, which, you know, for a lot of other players, that was the same, you know, it's kind of surprising how many great football players have ended up coming out of Berkeley and making it in the NFL. So you just mentioned, you know, football was in part really important to you because it, uh, it was a way to stay closeted. Um, you sort of described football as your beard for your life. Right. And, and, and you didn't have many plans after it because you weren't sure what your cover would be once football was gone. Right. Yeah. And for those people who don't know the in the gay community, the term beard is typically the, the girl you date or marry as a cover for your sexuality. And for me, it was, I used football as that cover, you know, as much as I tried to convince myself or find anything attractive about a female, I just couldn't do it. So I knew I couldn't do a good enough job of lying and, and convincing a girl that I was straight and to date me. So I used football, um, it was pretty easy just because a lot of people were you know, either too ignorant or didn't think twice to question whether a big masculine guy playing football, you know, was into other guys. So you're in college and you have the occasional sexual interaction with women, mostly when you're able to do it in front of your buddies to kind of keep the questions at bay. Um, and actually a friend from high school, um, that you knew from competing against him, Aaron Rodgers ends up getting recruited, transfers over to Berkeley. Um, and you've got, you know, football's going well. You've kind of got your social life under control in terms of feeling like you've had people convinced of who you are. Um, but you start to get even more surgeries, right? I, I think it was shoulder surgeries in your redshirt sophomore year and your junior year and your senior year. Yeah. So I had, uh, four shoulder surgeries when I was in college. Um, you know, as soon as you have one, your shoulder's never the same. And then it it just led to another and another. And I think that all started by the, the lifting style that we were taught my first year at Cal. And um, it just, 
they compounded on each other, but you know, I was always able to come back and I never missed a game because of one of those shoulder surgeries. Yeah. I mean, did you start having, I mean, I, I presume that you took painkillers for those surgeries in college, but you didn't have issues with addiction at the time you were able to sort of maintain and then, and then come back to the field. Yeah, I, I didn't, I was never addicted. Uh, you know, there's a difference between take, taking a painkiller after surgery and being addicted. I, I was never addicted to painkillers in college. You know, I, after a game, I'd be sore because you play through a season with a torn labrum. So I'd, I'd have to take a pill here and there. And I would also smoke marijuana, which really helped with, with the pain. But um, I wasn't addicted until later in my career. And everything in my mind was was really at a at a boiling point. And um, that's when painkillers you know, became more than just helping for pain. It, it helped cloud my mind and make me forget about everything going on. So you end up being able to continue playing football and you don't have to answer some of the questions that you have for yourself about what comes next because you get drafted by the Patriots. Um, and what kind of fears did you have about transitioning from the NFL or from college football to the NFL in terms of um, social life, structure, locker room, everything else? Well, when you're going from college to the NFL, you, you get the, you know, the one thing it's a, it's much tougher competition, but you're moving to a new town, you're around all new people. So whatever you tell these teammates and the people around you, that they have no reason not to believe you. So I was, I was able to just move to new England. And then, you know, you talk to guys in the locker room and they don't know anything about you. So I would just say, yeah, I have a girlfriend back home and you can leave it at that. That wasn't very uncommon at all. Uh, a lot of guys spent the off seasons at home and, and didn't move significant others out with them. So, you know, they had no reason to doubt me. Um, but, you know, the longer you spend there and, and, you know, this imaginary girlfriend you have back home never comes out and visits. You know, in my mind, people are starting to wonder. Here's another excerpt from Ryan's book. When I saw that the schedule included a gay former player talking about homophobia in the NFL, I had a little panic attack right there in the hotel lobby. Football had been my hiding place for almost a decade. Seeing that topic on the schedule of my first NFL event turned me upside down. It was the first time they'd ever had some gay guy come talk to the players about being gay in the league. In many ways, the NFL really is a reflection of society at large. As some states started to make gay marriage legal, and as athletes were trickling out of the closet, it became an issue the league suddenly seemed they felt the need to talk about. Gay, gay, gay. Of all the f***ing years to do this, they had to pick my rookie year. It was meant to help a guy like me, but I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I thought about skipping the session and heading up to my room with a headache, but there was no way to get out of it. NFL staffers circled the rooms like hawks, and unless I was going to puke on some security guard's shoes, I wasn't going anywhere. If anyone decided to miss a talk or disappeared to their room, they got fined. I didn't need to get fined. You also kind of had a bit of a panic attack early on when they did the rookie symposium, and they had a former NFL player who was gay, gay come and talk about homophobia in the NFL. Um, why didn't that make you feel better, the fact that it, there was somebody who was open enough about it to come back and to share with NFL players how to how to be in a locker room and what language to use. Why wasn't that a blessing instead of what you felt, which was a little bit more panicked about it? Yeah, yeah. I always looked at football as a great place to hide, and I, and I didn't think too much about there being, you know, other out football players. And so when Ezra came and spoke to us at, at the rookie symposium, well, I was caught off guard and. You know, I spent all this time looking at football as, as a great hiding spot, and here's the NFL. 
you know, putting more or less me out in front of people to, to talk about sexuality and the fact that there are gay players. And I never tried to make myself feel so small in those seats when, when Ezra got up there and started talking about it. Cause I felt like the whole time he was just staring at me, even though he wasn't. And then at the end, when he takes questions, one of the guys, one of the rookies, you know, had the nerve to ask him if it was okay to call him a faggot mm. because he was gay. You know, this was one of the recently drafted rookies who, you know, wasn't my teammate, but could have been just all of a sudden asking a, a question like that. And, you know, that, that quickly gives you a, a sense that, okay, you know, everyone's not accepting. Time for a quick break. And then more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. It's time to celebrate. Football is finally back, and DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy football, has huge week one contests. The first one starts this Thursday night when Chicago and Green Bay kick off the season in a single-game showdown with $2.5 million in total prizes up for grabs. Draft your single-game showdown lineup and feel the sweat like never before. It's simple. Just draft six players from the season opener. Stay under the salary cap and see how your team stacks up against the competition. Plus, new users who sign up today on DraftKings using code SPAIN will receive a free shot at the $1 million top prize. Nothing adds to the sweat of watching the game, quite like having a shot at a million-dollar payday. Get in on the season opener action. Download the DraftKings app now and use code SPAIN. For a limited time, both new and existing users can get a deposit bonus up to 500 bucks. And new users don't miss this extra special week one bonus. Enter my code SPAIN to get a free shot at $1 million with your first deposit. That's code SPAIN, only at DraftKings. Make it rain. Minimum $5 deposit required. Deposit bonus requires a 25 times playthrough. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. That's what she said. Another excerpt from My Life on the Line. After my senior season, I got a call from Brian wanting to reconnect. Like best friends so often do, we picked up right where we left off. Having him live with me would be genius for a couple reasons. For one, I'd have somebody to help move me to wherever I ended up. I was expecting a difficult time in my new city, not just because being an NFL rookie would require loads of studying and workouts and long hours at the facility. Having a right-hand man like Brian would be a lifesaver. The other thing I loved about it was that Brian was a lady killer, always on the prowl, the ultimate straight guy. Living with him and spending time with him would create an innocence by association. He'd have girls around the house. We'd have girls with us when we went out. And I figured I could put on enough of an act then to look like I was interested. And he was all in on living with me. It was the perfect scenario. So uh, your friend Brian, who you grew up with, you guys had always agreed that if either of you made it in the NFL, uh, assuming it would be you, that you would take the other one along. So after the draft, you, you guys had lost touch a little in college, but he calls you up and and says, you know, all right, I, I get to come along for the ride. What was the plan there? Because it feels like for a stretch, it made it really nice and easy and comfortable for you to have a roommate and a friend that you've known forever um, that, to help, again, just sort of cover up your lifestyle and and not have, have people ask why, you know, what what's going on back home. Yeah, having, having someone, anyone, whether it's a spouse or a buddy, help you out when you make such a transition like that is, you know, it makes all the difference in the world. And, and, uh, Brian was a good friend, you know, the first handful of years that, um, he was living with me, it was, it was all good. Um, you know, he was, uh, 
how to politely put it, promiscuous and, and good with girls. And I, I, he knew plenty of the other teammates and wasn't shy about it. So, you know, I, I always thought that other guys would assume I was like him since he was my best friend and lived with me. So, you know, that kind of worked to my advantage. But the longer we lived together, the more he got to see, you know, kind of behind the scenes of my life. And, you know, that kind of created more anxiety towards the end than it was worth. Yeah, did you worry about him wondering why you didn't have a, a steady stream of women coming in? Because you hadn't come out to him either. You hadn't come out to anyone. No, but I, I did worry, and I would kind of conveniently leave for, you know, an hour, hour and a half when he was around and not say where I was going because, you know, I would see him do that, and I knew, you know, he was going to meet up with a girl. And so I kind of took his lead and did the same thing and just didn't say anything. So I was hoping that he would assume the same thing. Um, so I would, I would do little things like that and, um, acted very conservative and heck, I even donated money to Newt Gingrich one year just, uh, and talked about it just to try to appear straight, you know, 99% of gay men would never donate to a Republican candidate. So, you know, I, I did things that he knew about that in my mind were making me you know, come off straight, even though he saw that I wasn't always bringing girls back. Well, I was never bringing girls back. Yeah. So you get injured with the pats again. It's the, it's the shoulder. Um, they sort of lie to you about it because they can't cut you if you're injured and you have to go through quite a lot to end up, um, you know, getting the rights that you're allotted to get a second opinion and to get the right procedures done to, to confirm that you do have um, an injury that requires more surgery. You get the surgery, go back, to the Pats to do your rehab, but it just wasn't the same there after that, right? Yeah, so I got injured, came back, did my rehab uh, with them so they could see that I was committed. And then, um, you know, that was my, at that point, my fourth surgery on my left shoulder. And, uh, you know, I knew at that point I was a liability and I had to prove to them that I was worth having around. And, you know, I, that that next season, uh, Nick, the other right tackle was playing and doing well and then he got injured and um so i think i got one start that year and i did i did really well and uh you know i i just i my body was was slowly breaking down which added anxiety because i knew that you know when football was over and the one thing that was really going to end my career was injuries um the more injuries i got you know, I knew it was closer to the end. Yeah. Um, you get you get uh, a dog at that time, right? You get a boxer puppy right around the time that you're recovering from this surgery and gave you something that you really wanted to take care of and that you felt responsible for. And that was a big deal and became an even bigger deal when you had two dogs later and, and you had these suicidal thoughts and you weren't sure what, what was to become of your life. Like the dogs kind of grounded you. Yeah, if you know, if you're depressed and, and looking for positive things in life, there's not much better than having a having a puppy or a dog or you know something that you see is dependent on you that's always happy to see you. Um, and even to this day, you know, I don't I don't need to look to my dogs for happiness. I you know, I, I, life is great, but uh, you know, they're just they're awesome companions, and and for me, you know, they were extremely helpful in my life and. You know, I'm forever thankful for them for that. So you have this dog and your time with the Patriots comes to an end. 
um, thankfully, in your sort of exit interview, when you know that they're going to let you go, um, they they say you're probably going to get a call from Scott Pioli over with the Chiefs. So were you worried at all that your career was done, or did you feel confident that this second second chance with the Chiefs was coming? I was confident it was coming. Um, you know, I had a conversation with Belichick, and I was confident it was coming. And you know, I I, I knew I had another chance. I had to make the most of it. Another excerpt from my life on the line. Over the next few weeks, I take out that pad of paper, scratch out some things, write some more. It's usually at night when I've sunk myself into the beer or the whiskey and some of those precious pills, too. I don't write a single word of that suicide note sober, but I know exactly what I'm writing. Through all the erasing and rewriting of that letter, I never tell them the real reason I need to kill myself. I will never come out to them or anyone else in a note or in person. I don't want anyone to know that all along I've just been a faggot in a football uniform. Even in death, I have to be the straight guy. After this latest shoulder injury, I spiral down fast. I'm taking an absurd amount of painkillers, up to 30 pills of various strengths on an average Tuesday. Now I'm hell-bent on draining my bank account. There are days I spend $400 on the prescription narcotics the NFL has deemed okay. Things weren't great in Kansas City. Todd Haley was there. Uh, wasn't a great fit. Um, but you did like uh, being around Scott Pioli. And you did find this rental property, or, or I guess this 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 cabin that you bought. Um, and that became your escape. And the, the conversations with your teammates while you guys are, you know, planting trees and planning for the future, uh, you know, of, of what the, you know, what you're going to work on with the cabin are all seem like such a departure from the stresses of everything else. Um, and then it becomes very much um, not just a place where you can escape pressures of football or, or social pressures, but you actually plan that to be the place that you're going to die. Yeah. Buying the property was a, was a good escape, something to do, something to clear the mind. Um, you know, and originally it wasn't going to be the cabin that I ended up building, but I had gotten injured again and, you know, it was looking very, very likely that, that things were going to be over. So the cabin quickly developed into a nicer place and, um, you know, it's not much better place if you're going to kill yourself, you know, sounds silly, but to do it, you know, in a beautiful place like that. So uh, your time with the Chiefs, you become much more um, reliant on drugs. Um, you, you mentioned at one time you could get as many as nine refills of Vicodin in one month, plus the weed. Um, you're even able to get drugs from outside doctors that aren't your football doctors. At one point, your neighbors, right? I think there's a part where you're getting uh, some b- borrowing drugs from neighbors who've recently had surgery. Yeah, I was manipulating anyone that I could. You know, when you're an addict, you'll do what you have to do to to get what you need to, you know, to get your fix. And um, if you notice your neighbors on crutches and just had surgery, okay, you know they got some pills. And um, you know, when you're taking pills, at, at first two will do. Well, the next day you need three, and so on and so on. And you know, it got it got to the point where I was spending four hundred bucks a day buying them anywhere I could, manipulating doctors, going to multiple doctors, and. Uh, it quickly got out of hand. And there was a coach that knew of the many different prescriptions of the amount that you were being given by the team. You don't mention him by name, but I imagine, do you have any concern or maybe do you anticipate that the NFL is going to reach out to you when the book comes out to ask about this coach? Yeah. In the book, I talk about a coach who would come to me for, 
um, painkillers. And I, I'm not in the business of getting anyone fired, um, but I thought it was, you know, something to bring up to draw, you know, attention to the problem that is out there and, and the yeah. widespread use of opiates in the NFL. And not the NFL may reach team. out. Um, I'm not going to reveal who he is, but, um, you know, it, it is a problem that that is out there. So you're you're addicted to opiates, and um, at one point, your trainer with the Chiefs, um, you think you're hiding it fairly well, even though you, you, you admit that there isn't really a waking hour that you're not high on something. And apparently this trainer seems to have picked up on it and decides that you go talk to um, a doctor about, about the drug use. Uh, at first, not something you're really interested in, right? No, he he knew that I was. He obviously knew the prescriptions the team was writing me, and he knew I had a problem. He didn't know exactly why I was abusing him. Well, he didn't know why at all I was abusing him. But he brought me to his office one morning that he saw me and asked, you know, if I think I should go talk to someone. And rather than drawing more attention to it and saying no, I I just agreed and I went along with it. So tell me about Doctor Wilson. Yeah, Doctor Wilson. Um, she doesn't work for the NFL, but she had worked with the chief speaking to other players before for different reasons. So they set me up with her and um, she's a, you know, what turned out to be an awesome lady. At first I was, you know, being shy and didn't really want to open up to her about anything, but you know, months go by, she did her job and she broke me down and got to the root of the problem. And she was the first person I ever came out to, um, which was a huge weight off my shoulders. And I explained to her my whole plan all along and, in so many words, she convinced me to find out if I need to go along with my plan and to come out to certain people in my life that I was most worried about to find out their reaction. Because basically, she said, if you plan on killing yourself anyways, you might as well find out if you need to. Um, mm. So that, that's what I did. So you get this weight off your shoulders from telling her, but obviously she's she's a doctor. It's confidential. She's not someone that's important in your life. How difficult was it to make that leap to, okay, now I have to tell someone that I love, someone from my family or my friends? Yeah, it it was a big leap. I was obviously, you know, very nervous. That was my biggest fear in life ever was them finding out and judging me and and disowning me. But I made the decision to tell them and um, I wasn't going to back out of it at that point. So I went back to California, started by telling my aunt and uncle and my parents and um, you know, it, it uh, not everyone was a hundred percent on board at the beginning, but it wasn't the giant explosion, you know, telling me to get out of their life and everything else that in my mind, I had built it up to be, you know, Brian, your friend who you had lived with for a while, you guys got into a fight over a business deal and he actually told your dad that he thought you were gay. Your dad confronted you on it and you denied it. Um, why didn't you feel comfortable in that moment with the opportunity right in front of you to say something? Well, that was at least a year before I ended up coming out to them. Um, it might've been closer to two years. And I, I just, even the way he asked me in that restaurant, if I was, was almost in a way of disgust and disbelief, like, you know, are you, are you gay? And at night, when I was rehearsing how to react to different situations, I got over that scenario a million times in my head. So I knew exactly how to react. And I just, I just did what I had practiced a million times. Here's another excerpt from Ryan's book. 
When I walk into Uncle John's house, I look like a swamp monster. I'm covered in sweat. I haven't slept. And I'm simultaneously high as a kite and ready to crash. My half-scissor's visiting them, and I don't mince words. I feel like shit. My heart is going to explode. When a 330-pounder says his heart's going to explode, everyone gets concerned, even when it's a 28-year-old professional athlete. Uncle John's a former firefighter, so he gives me a once-over. Before he can get through half of it, I tell him I need medical help. My sister hurries me to her car sitting in the driveway and takes me to what is more like a couple of trailers with some medical equipment than a hospital. When I walk through the door, a very nice nurse calmly asks me to sit on a chair as she takes some of my vitals. She asks what's going on, and I tell her about the combination of drugs and driving through the night. She wraps a blood pressure sleeve around my arm, pumps it up so it squeezes around my bicep, then slowly releases the air. She looks down at the gauge, and the calm expression on her face quickly transforms. She stares at me, fear in her wide eyes, her mouth agape. She yells for help. Oh, shit. All hell breaks loose. So fast forward to a year, and, I mean, there's some dramatic parts of this book right before you do come out, including... Um, you know, one of the packages of pills that you had ordered gets discovered and you're brought into the police. Uh, you're driving uh, home and uh, you almost die when you're driving home, right? Yeah, I I had also taken some Adderall to help me on the 27-hour drive. And I was kind of ignorant to the effects of it. And um, I was so nervous about everything and everything going on in my head that I just wanted to make it out to California and I just, I, I, I took too much and I'd stopped at a hospital, a very tiny hospital in the middle of Nevada along the way, because my heart felt like it was going to explode. And by the time I got to the mountain town where my uncle lived, I, I had to do something, you know? Um, so I went to that hospital and they took my blood pressure and then they basically treated me like I was having a heart attack. They were spraying, I guess it's nitrous or nitro in my mouth and hooking me up to all sorts of different machines and giving me different drugs to calm me down. And I ended up spending uh, two nights, I believe, in the hospital. And um, that's when I came out to my aunt and uncle because I didn't know if I was going to make it. And, um, you know, that was the last time I ever took pills like that. And in that moment, you know, there's still a part of you that's, that's very much considering suicide. Did you then think, wait, now that I'm afraid and all of this is happening, I don't actually want to die. And I do want people to know the truth about me. Um, That's an interesting moment, right? Uh, That you're actually facing the fear of the thing that you thought you were going to bring upon yourself. Yeah. At at that point, you know, the first couple people are on board. You just want to hurry up and tell other people and then, and see if they're on board, you know, as soon as you get a couple positive reactions, you're, you're kind of, your whole mindset changes like, okay, there's a chance that, you know, I can live as an out gay man. So, you know, at that point I never wanted to live more um, just to find out. And then within a week, everyone that I wanted to know that I cared about their reaction the most knew. And, um, you know, I, I quickly understood that everything that I had heard as a child was out of ignorance and not hate. And that, you know, no matter what, I would have people that love me. But your friendship with Brian never really came back around. Um, And there was a part of you that believed that he worried that because you guys had lived together for so long and been such close friends that people would assume that he was gay, too. Yeah, um, we haven't spoke since 2012. I don't know exactly what happened. Um, I'm left assuming that's the reason based off 
conversations he had with mutual friends who told me about their conversation. Um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me why someone would react that way, but, um, you know, I, I, I also lied to him for years about who I was. So I can understand if, if there was, you know, some tension there, I, I wasn't exactly honest with him and treated him the best. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily have hard feelings. I, I would love to maybe chat one day, get a little closure, find out what exactly happened. But, you know, there was never anything between us. There was never, there was nothing between us. So I, I don't understand why that was a real concern of his. We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in... ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. Aaron Rodgers was a friend of yours from high school on and throughout your time in the NFL, you guys would still hang out and connect and, and um, you even, you know, eventually started talking about business ventures once you retired. Um, but before, before the business venture, you know, take me back to the moment when you decide to come out to him. Yeah, I, I came out to him and he flew me to green Bay and um, we're sitting on his couch and um, he stood up, gave me a hug, said, love you buddy. And everything was fine. And then, some time goes by. Well, actually, on that couch, we had the conversation. He knew the position I put myself in with money and everything else. And unexpectedly, he kind of threw a lifeline, um, offered a business deal, and um, which I knew he had done quietly with other people. And uh, so I, I took his offer serious, and I, I went to work finding uh, a good, you know, a good investment. Um, so some time went by, and he had some rumors go public about him that uh, his old assistant had had spoken publicly about. And after those rumors came out about him, uh, he stopped talking to me overnight. Yeah, there's been speculation about about Roger's sexuality, uh, usually just in sort of gossip mags. Although he did get asked it outright, I believe on an on an ESPN radio show at one point and 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 he said you know i just i like girls a lot i'm not gay but he had a similar situation to yours in that he had a, a good friend slash assistant who was a guy who lived with him for years and um you know the way that you present your relationship there are some parallels in, in roger's life and um i i mean far be it for me to to, to guess at anything from afar or, or or to wonder but um it's it's sort of hard to hear that in that moment um, when the criticism came for him, he abandoned you in that moment because you had said your biggest fear was really people that you cared about um, not being there for you if you came out. And that's, that's what happened with Brian and Aaron, right? 
Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to speculate on what Aaron is and he's talked publicly and said he isn't, um, which I, I have no reason to doubt him because I do not know otherwise, but, uh, it's just unfortunate what happened in the end. And, you know, the only reason I talked about it in the book was you can't honestly tell your life story without adding the low moments. And right. that business deal gave me more hope than I ever had. And then to rip that away was the low moment in my life. So, you know, it, it wouldn't have been an honest book without, without including that. Another excerpt from my life on the line. Coming out to my friends and family has given me hope for a future like I've never experienced in my life. But the weight of my poor financial decisions lingers heavily. Living with my parents in my childhood bedroom is humbling, to put it mildly. Now, for the first time since playing in the NFL, I have something exciting on the horizon. And I'll be going into business with a guy I deeply respect. A guy I've called my friend for a decade. It's the perfect arrangement, and we'll both come out better for it. He goes on to say... On that phone call, Aaron Rodgers and I also talked about a couple of gossip sites on the Internet that have started a rumor about Aaron breaking up with his quote-unquote boyfriend. That New Year's Eve, Aaron gets on an ESPN radio show and responds to the gay speculation. I'm not gay, he says. I really, really like women. That's all I could say about it. Our phone call after Christmas ends up being the last time Aaron ever speaks to me. With no warning, he suddenly cuts off all communication. In the weeks following the holidays, I text him and call him a bunch of times. After that doesn't get a response, I email him a couple times. We'd been communicating regularly, and he was going to finance a million-dollar project that I was going to manage. Now, nothing. Zero. Radio silence. I go from thinking my future had, for the first time in my life, some positive light at the end of the tunnel, to feeling lower than I've ever felt in my life. The highest highs produce the lowest lows, and this is the only time since getting sober that I ever again consider suicide. You mentioned that that was the last time, that low moment of having this idea of, okay, this is the business that's going to help me after football. You had lost a lot of the money that you made in the league on on prescription drugs and on and other things. You spent a lot of money because you thought, I am not going to need to keep this after I kill myself. Um, and when that business plan and opportunity is taken away and you, you haven't heard from Rogers for months, um, you, you once again returned to the idea of wanting to kill yourself for a time, right? Yeah, that was the only time after I came out to people that I ever questioned it. Just I, I, I was once again kind of felt all alone, and, and I, I just didn't know where to turn. And, you know, since then I've learned that, you know, you got to rely on yourself and, and not others. But, uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was a dark moment for me, and, um, you know, I... Once again, I, I still haven't, I haven't spoken with him since. Do you think you'll hear from Brian or Aaron after the book comes out? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't, that's not like a goal or anything. Um, if they want to reach out, I haven't changed my number. So you, you come out to friends and family. Um, how did you decide? And I know you first told your story and I remember when it came out um, on out sports to Sid Ziegler Um how did that come about? And were you scared to say, this isn't just a personal thing I can do on my own, but now I'm going to make it public and be a voice for this? Yeah, I, I knew that I always wanted to um, tell my story publicly to help someone who was in my position. And I, I had found out about Sid just from online researching other athletes. And um, I knew that he was very professional and, and could do a good job helping me do that. Uh, so I reached out to Sid and, and 
you know, got the ball rolling on that. Um, and that's been tremendously beneficial, um, you know, be getting my story out there and, and reaching other closeted athletes. So the story comes out, a lot of people respond incredibly positively. What about the negative side? Did you have strangers reaching out or were people sending hateful stuff to you? Nope, not one message. Wow. That's Yeah, that, I was surprised. Were you surprised? I was surprised, but it all, it also gave me, you know, a little bit of hope that times are changing and um yeah. Well, yeah, today I, I haven't gotten one negative email. Now, I don't look at comments on all little stories and stuff, so I'm, I'm sure you could find one if you want. But Very smart. <laughs> no one's reached out directly. Yeah. And uh, your old owner with the Patriots, Robert Kraft, hears about your story of coming out, and, and he reaches out almost immediately. Yeah, he reached out and, and invited me out to – to New England, and um, so we met, and he took part in that ESPN special I did. And um, since then, he's made a generous contribution to my charity, and um, he's been a he's been a huge supporter of mine. And he was even in Israel when when he tried to reach out to you the first time, right? Yeah, he was, and then he had the number back from when I lived in New England. But um, as soon as he could get a hold of me, get my right number, he we connected. But yeah, he did reach out when he was in Israel. Kraft is an interesting cat. He's got relationships with people of all backgrounds and political interests and otherwise. Um, but you consider him a, ma- a major ally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't, I tend to judge people on my relationship with them and, and um, you know, you could be friends with someone of a different political affiliation and, and still, um, you know, be an ally and, and very supportive. And I know he's been a huge, um, he's been huge when it comes to donating to different charities like Elton John's and the sponsoring the gay flag football league. And, um, so I've got nothing but great things to say about Mr. Kraft. And you had a great experience with, uh, your former, former chief's head as well. And Scott Pioli. Yeah. Scott, Scott's been by my side. Ever since I came out to him, Scott's been awesome. He, uh, we still chat on a somewhat regular basis and keep each other up to speed on what's going on in our lives. And um, yeah, Scott's been an awesome ally, and um, you know he, he's he's good at putting himself out there and, and speaking up for people who don't necessarily have a voice. Yeah, and he's retired now, and and I think I heard you say in another podcast that you might consider actually partnering with him uh, to do some more activism and speaking on the topic. Yeah, it, it's come up a couple times about partnering up, teaming up, doing different interviews, things, and um, you know, I actually had to pass up on one today for outside the lines to uh, because I got this other stuff going on. But yeah, I, I, I plan on um, getting together with him and doing different forms of outreach. So, what's life like now for you? Uh, what What are you doing um, for for work, and and how is it different, even just in the couple of years since you came out? Yeah, well, as far as work goes, I, I'm I won disability through the NFL due to all my injuries, which is not a tough thing to win. It took four years and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, work by my attorneys, but not um, an easy thing to win. No, not at all. Um, so yeah, so now I I, I run the Rhino Callan Foundation, R O F D N dot org, and uh, do outreach for other LGBT athletes, um, different corporations like the 
have me out and talk. And um, in January, I speak in front of a group of 200 um, athletic doctors to talk about drug abuse and things. So, you know, my story's got a lot of layers to it, and I'm able to reach a lot of different people for, you know, different different topics, really. It, it covers a lot of things. I know you met with the commissioner, Roger Goodell, and he asked you what you can do to maybe help and what the NFL can do to help. What what did you have to say to him? What were your suggestions? Well, it has to do with visibility, just being out there, letting, letting the closeted players know by doing visible things like taking part in the New York Pride Parade. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot else that they can do besides doing more outreach and helping the youth and, and doing public things like that. Cause you're not going to, you're not going to get guys that are deeply closeted reach out, but if they know that the guy at the top is supportive and there for them, you know, it might just help a little bit. Do you think there's more opportunities to do stuff like the one your rookie year when you had a, a former NFL player who had come out since, since retiring, come talk about being gay and homophobia in the league? Yeah. All that helps. So, um, you still live in Reading, right? Yeah, still living in Reading. Uh, not in the long term, but as long as I have my two dogs and I'm, and I'm, you know, single and and doing a little bit of traveling, living in Reading makes the most sense. But it's that's I mean, it's surprising to me. I mean, obviously there's you know family and a sense of comfort, and that's where you're from. But you know, you mentioned before this is a place that's full of people who would literally try to, to, to cure you of, of your, of who you are. Is, is there any part of you that believes you would be happier somewhere else that isn't, isn't so conservative and isn't so maybe afraid of, of gay people? Yeah. I mean, this is probably the worst place to live as a single gay man, but you know, I, I've been able to change <laughs> a lot casually. of people while I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been able to change a lot of people's opinions while I'm here and, and doing my part. And um, I'm not the only you know, noteworthy gay athlete from here. There's also Megan Rapino, and, yeah. you know, so we were kind of having our own little influence on this area, but at some point I'll move to a more populated area and, and start that chapter in my life. But, um, yeah, it is what it is. Now I'm not going to play a psychiatrist here, but is there any part of you, do you, do you not feel fully comfortable embracing what's next for you? And is it easy to sort of hide in Reading because there's not a lot of opportunities to meet other gay men or to kind of take that next step toward, you know, marriage or children or or at least committing or, or whatever you might want going. No, I'm I'm not, I'm not hiding whatsoever. And and I'm just, I'm perfectly happy. You know, if if I only do things that make me happy these days, that's good. (laughs) That's a good, that's a good way to do things. Um, Yeah. And so tell us more about the foundation and what it does. Yeah, so it's uh, ROFDN.org. It's the Rhino Callahan Foundation. So um, we're going to give out the first scholarship next year. Right now we're doing a lot of fundraising. All, all the profits from all of my profits from the book going directly to the foundation. Uh, nobody with the foundation gets paid. So all the money comes in, goes out. And um, so yeah, we plan on partnering with other uh, charitable organizations like You Can Play and hosting events and kids from across the country and in the long-term um, scholarships and mentorships for uh, other closet or further out athletes. That's fantastic. Have you gotten a lot of feedback from other um, athletes, young or old or even professional since you came out, reaching out to you to talk about it? It's just all been 
positive that you know we we got your back and you should have told me a long time ago it, it's no it's it's all been very positive i've had several retired and current nfl players reach out that are gay or bi and just it feels you know it's be some there be someone for someone to talk to even if it's just one person who's not going to tell anyone um it's all, it's all been very positive yeah that's fantastic um you know i think this book could um really make things easier for a lot of people growing up and coming up and trying to figure out where they fit in and you're just so honest in it about your struggles and um congrats on the book uh I'm looking forward to having everybody else get to read it too and talk about it. But before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. The 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Oh, gosh. Uh, Garth Brooks' Greatest Hits. Nice. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? I am extremely detail-oriented. Hmm, that's a good one. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, ooh. Um, I, I don't know if it's a failure. I just really wish I would have came out earlier because it you know, would have helped a lot in life. Yeah. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Uh, I've been in one physical fight outside of football. How did it go for you? Uh, Brian ended up on the ground. (laughs) Number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? I don't know. I love my life now. Um, Just for a day, though, just to see what it's like. Just for a day? I don't know. Mr. Kraft's got a pretty cool life. Yeah, it wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, it was something that happened at football practice after I took too many of something the trainer gave me. I won't get into details. Did you poop your pants? I won't get into details. <laughs> Moving on, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Uh, I need to learn how to smile. I didn't smile for years. I ended up spending a bunch of money getting veneers, so I need to learn how to smile. And you weren't not smiling because of the teeth. You were not smiling because of the act of, you know, I'm a tough guy? Both. Stress, I used to grind my teeth a bunch, so they oh, I weren't wow. happy with them. Now you got a nice new smile. You got to show it off. You can't pay yeah, exactly. for those veneers and cover them up. Uh, number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? You have to be nice to each other. That seems to be a lot of people's answer these days, which I think tells us a lot about what's going on in our country, which is too bad. Yeah. Um, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, coming out to my family. Yeah. And number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Uh Honest, kind, and loyal. Oh, those are good ones. Uh, the bonus listener question, who would play you in the movie of your life? Uh, I don't know, but it, I think we're going to have to figure that out here soon based on... Okay. Breaking news right here on the That's What She Said with Sarah Spain <laughs> podcast. We're going to get a movie of this. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, you're you're a big boy, so it's either going to be they're going to have to hire a bunch of other actors that just look small, <laughs> or they're going to have to actually find yeah. a six foot seven dude who's looking for his big break. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and finally, the bonus question: uh, Who would you recommend that I have on this podcast to talk to? Who would be a good interview? Does it have to be an athlete? I think no, Dr. Wilson be... would be an intriguing person to speak with because she's had a lot of interactions with other athletes on a psychological basis. Yeah, that would be a great one. She sounded really fascinating yeah. in the book and um, obviously played a, yeah. a big role in your life. Um, thanks so much for doing this, Ryan. Uh, congrats on the book and, and look forward to seeing you do some more press on it. All right. Thank you much. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, regular two-day weekends. Every single Sunday, I feel like I complain about how I just need one more day to actually get stuff done. Like a second Sunday. Because by the time you're done with work on Friday, you're like super tired. Maybe you go out, but not for long. Then you blow through your Saturday, cleaning the garage or taking the kids to the park or drinking your way through all the local pubs. And then it's on to Sunday and you've got to go to a baby shower or a family function or drink your way through several pubs again. And then the Sunday scary set in and now you spend the rest of the night planning for a meeting or a presentation or a podcast. Two day weekends are not enough. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Two days, a measly two days. A three day holiday weekend is the goods. You get the second Sunday and you can figure your life out. And those two days of drinking your way through all the pubs don't get you that far behind. Or you have an extra day to hit all the pubs you missed on Saturday and Sunday. It's perfect. All right. I feel good about what we've accomplished today. All weekends should be three-day weekends. Let's make it happen. There. I fixed it. Be sure to check out another podcast in the Lebetard and Friends podcast network, Marty Smith's America. This week, Marty recaps the first full week of college football and his experience doing goat yoga. Download and subscribe to Marty Smith's America right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me, at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave your dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said.